Welcome to Here's to Almost. It's your host, Rachel Lithgow. Every week, we'll dive into stories of almost. From athletes to entrepreneurs to everything in between, sometimes life doesn't go as planned. I'm here to tell you that not all dreams come true. That doesn't have to be a bad thing, though. Tune in every Wednesday to hear inspiring stories of almost and how our almost can take us some pretty amazing places. This week's guest is one I've been thinking about pretty much since I had the idea for the podcast. He is a speaker, internationally ranked elite para-athlete, and Business 40 Under 40 honoree. He is a community leader and activist for equitable healthcare, disability rights, and the LGBTQ plus community. You know when you meet someone, you just love them right away? Well, that was Kyle for me, and I think you're going to feel the same. I bring to you this week's episode with the incredible Kyle Stepp. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing today? Good, Rachel. How are you? Good. Thank you. All right. So I just want to start off by going to the beginning. Um, can you just walk me through your childhood? Um, what were you like as a kid? Just that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, Rachel, when I get asked that question, it's been it's been an interesting process of how to answer that. Um, because so often we want to tell um, the story of our childhood that was like filled with adventure and opportunities but I was, uh, my childhood was raised by strangers and the community. And, you know, so often I look back on, you know, my childhood, it prepared me for, I think this, like this crazy season of, um, big goals and drive that I have right now. But, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't raised in a traditional childhood. You know, I grew up in boys homes and foster care and, you know, later in my life was, you know, my later, my childhood was diagnosed with a rare aggressive bone cancer. But there's always been these like really pivotal moments in my life as a childhood um, that I now have realized that has prepared me for where I'm going in the future. But um, just I was I like to say that I was raised by the community and it's really shaped me in the way I love, the way I serve, the way I lead, um, because it's a blessing now. I, I look back and I was I was raised by dozens of people <laughs> that showed me just like have each of them have left something with me. Mm-hmm. Um, through my time, you know, living with them as a kid. Oh, I love that. That's a really positive spin on that. Can you talk about, you said there's some pivotal moments that happened in your childhood. Can you talk through some of those? Yeah, Rachel, you know, you're never prepared. (laughs) I think in life, the one thing that I've learned since I was like a little kid is that you're never prepared to go through hard things. And it's in those moments that your body and your mind completely just adapts. That's what's wild. It's so often like you hear, you know, I hear all the time, like whether it's, you know, experiencing limb loss or the way I grew up or, you know, overcoming bone cancer. Someone, someone likes, you often hear like, you're such an inspiration. I don't know how you did it. And I think all of us, like any of anyone that's gone through something hard hears, I don't know how you did it. And then so often you just respond, you just do it. There's no other choice. There's like, there's just literally no other choice. And I think that is like the biggest thing I've learned. It's like, if, if I were to culminate everything is that in life, like you're just going to have to navigate really difficult seasons. But what's really interesting is when you change your relationship with something difficult and hard, you, there's always lessons or there's things that you gain from it. Because for me, I often, I now seek really difficult seasons because I'm like, there's at the end of this season, at the end of this road that I'm going on of whatever I'm navigating, whether it's interpersonally, um, it's through relationships with others. It's like my own internal demons that I'm working through. There's something beautiful that's going to come from this. I may not know it, but if I honor and recognize that there's something beautiful. And I think the biggest turning point for me was you know, my freshman year, my freshman year of high school, I just moved in with my grandparents, um, Rachel. And I, so prior to that, you know, I was living in boys homes. I was living in foster care. I was moving from home to home. And unfortunately, because my parents fell to addiction and my freshman year, I thought it was going to be a brand new start in life. You know, Mm -hmm. as any freshman in high school, like you get stoked to, whether it's to try out for your high school sports team, it's to get involved in student government, 
but there's like a sense of new beginning, especially when you go to high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, I, I had this opportunity where I had a clean slate. No one knew me. You know, I got to write this new story of who Kyle is. And unfortunately, like while getting injured my freshman year in, in PE, and then again, like finding out again in baseball, I was diagnosed with a high aggressive form of osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer. And at that time, Rachel, I literally thought that was, um, I was entering the door of my last chapter in life. Because at this point, I'm like, yo, (laughs) if there's something else I'm going through, like, this is probably the last chapter. Like, at this point, it's like, I probably went through my nine lives already at this point (laughs) in my life. So at 14 years old, it was interesting. I remember looking into my grandfather's eyes when um, I was sitting across from Dr. James McKinnell, who was my pediatric oncologist. And I looked into my papa's eyes and I said, okay, let's do this. And you were how old at that point when you got that diagnosis? 14. 14. Wow. So prior to this diagnosis, were you pretty active and involved in different activities? You know, Rachel, I was always the kid that wanted to. So okay. I was I was the little kid. Ever since I was a little kid, I was on my bike. Um, I was never I never had the opportunities to, you know, do any sort of competitive sports, just unfortunately um not having access or privilege to it. Just because sure. you know, my parents couldn't you know, my parents couldn't afford it, or you know, my foster parents or the boys' home parents could never afford to put me in organized sports. Um, but the one thing we did have is I just had a bike. I remember, I remember my first day, like as a little kid, my, um, my dad was teaching me how to ride a bike outside of my grandparents' house. And it was like, there was just something freeing about it. You know, throughout my entire childhood, it was always, I would always find freedom on the bike, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when my parents were fighting or, you know, there would be nights where, you know, they would be extremely intoxicated and I just did not want to be home. Mm-hmm. And so it would just get on my bike and leave. And I still followed the rules of like, gotta be home <laughs> by the street lights when the street lights come on. Um, but it was where I found the most freedom. And, you know, to the point where, you know, when I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, Rachel, uh, one of the surgeries that they completed is called a limb salvage. And at the time, you know, I didn't know anyone living with limb loss. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when my surgeon provided the opportunity to preserve my limb, I immediately jumped to it. I said, like, let's, you know, I think this is going to be the best outcome because you're like deathly afraid. Like if you don't, you've never saw anyone that looks like, you know, if you never saw anyone that with limb loss, that's living this active lifestyle, Mm -hmm. you're going to fear it because you're a 14 year old kid. Yeah. Because the only narrative I had around people living with a disability is living a sedentary lifestyle and there's this negative stigma that was around people living in disability. So, you know, I opted for limb salvage, um, which unfortunately came with a lot of complications. But I remember when I returned to physical activity, um, I would literally bike to physical activity. Like I literally, that was like a goal of mine after they put the metal implant in my leg, which was, you know, a part of my femur, my entire knee and my tibia was replaced with stainless steel. Um, because they needed a margin to make sure that there was, yeah, after they removed the tumor to make sure there's a safe margin, that there's no tumor left in, in, in my left leg. Um, but there was just always freedom. So I was the little kid that just dabbled everything. Um, I always had dreams of doing more, but never had the opportunity to later on in life. For sure. That makes sense. So you're 14. They just did this surgery. What are you thinking about? Like what, what is your life? Rachel, I just, I didn't know. I just like, I always had this, you know, at 14 years old, you knew that I had a protocol. Like when I was, you know, when you're given the chemotherapy, I was given a game plan. Mm -hmm. I think I've always been wired in this like way of like, here's a plan and that's a get to the finish line. (laughs) And, you know, being diagnosed with osteosarcoma, I was given um, a chemotherapy regimen that comprised of 18 rounds of inpatient chemotherapy. There's going to be multiple surgeries, including, you know, the, the main surgery that was to remove the tumor and replace the infected bone with stainless steel. But then also due to the type of cancer, um, they thought it metastasized. So they had to do lung surgeries. And then because the type of 
the type of treatment I, I was on was a, uh, was a research protocol. So about halfway through the 18 rounds, um, you actually, you meet with your, you meet with your oncologist, they call in and you're either going to get an A protocol or a B protocol. And A protocol means you're done with the 18 rounds of treatment or B means you're going to continue with an, with an additional treatments for research and to make sure. And so, um, pulled a lucky straw of B. <laughs> um, so I had over, over additional 70 rounds of it's called pegylated interferon alpha two B. It's a, it's a shot. And what they were assuming that it would do is it would boost my immune system so strong where if, if the cancer reoccurred, um, it, my body could fight it. And mm -hmm. so, um, I pulled that lucky straw. So there's another 72 weeks, but there was just my mind. So it was just like, let's just get through this. Mm -hmm. Um, but what was interesting during this process, Rachel, I think so often we want to, we want a reason why things happen. Like we just, as humans, we want mm -hmm. rationale. And and I look back on my childhood and I'm like, I would, I would consistently fight with this internal challenge of why am I going through this? Like, I just don't, I really don't understand. And during that time, I was invited to volunteer in the children's hospital. And that was like my first opportunity to start giving purpose behind what mm -hmm. I was going through, really not only to help others because you know, my life changed when I got to meet, there was nine kids I went through treatment with that completely changed my life. Um, they were there during each season of my treatment that showed me just like unrelentless, like grit and, and love and perseverance. And, you know, early on when I met one of the young men, Cesar, he was the first kid that I met in treatment. You know, I walk into the hospital, I'm sitting in treatment. You know, he sits next to me, hands me an Xbox controller <laughs> and says, welcome to the unit. Let's play FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> and just like this sense of like, it wasn't, hey, what's your story? You know, why are you going through cancer? It's just, I, I felt like I belonged. And, and so early on had the opportunity um, to play a similar role when it was new kids coming into the hospital. Um, it was, you know, volunteering to raise money for the children's hospital. That was something like I could never be the kid or the family that could just write a check back to the hospital and say, thank you for what you've done. It was mm -hmm. through service and volunteer hours and, and also inviting my community and people I know to donate. Um, but there were so many people I met through my treatment that played such an integral role in, in my survival, especially from a mental health standpoint. And so that allowed me, it's like, okay, I'm don't know why I'm going through this, but if I can at least make someone's life a little bit easier than mine, I did, I, I gave purpose to this journey. And that really ended with, you know, when Cesar passed away, all nine passed. And Cesar, one of the last things that he left is when he wrote, so in his obituary, there was a letter to everybody. And one of the, and the main thing that he drove home was that he never regretted, he never regretted having cancer. Because the way that he just looks at the world is so differently, the way he loves. But he challenged everyone to leave this world a little bit better than you received it. And that's been a guiding principle since I was a little kid. Wow. That's incredible. Um, just take a moment for that. Um, so when that happened, is that the point that you're like, I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to give back, I need to do that? Or was that something you were into before? Was it something driven by your grandparents? Because that's pretty big for a, like a kid so young to have that perspective. It's so ever since I was a little kid, that's how I survived. Like in how, you know, volunteering and service has always been like the vehicle for me to one, feel safe during times that like, you know, especially with my parent, like my biological parents and everything happening at home, you know, I would, I would intentionally sign up for like student council and national honor society. So I didn't have to go home. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when I, when my mom would take me to church, you know, I would volunteer in the kids ministry so I can stay at church longer. So I didn't have to go back home. And so what happened was what I noticed is like, through service, it did a couple of things. Like it did one, it gave reasoning 
um, it gave me just a purpose because I think so often that's all we that's all we hope for. It's like we wake up in the morning and we try to figure out like what is our purpose here on earth. That is like the lifelong battle that we all have. And we want purpose behind why things happen and reason. And so it allowed it allowed the little noise in my head to like let's just let's just quiet that part of your mind <laughs> where give it allows me to wrap my mind around purpose, but it was also um it's where I felt safe and where I felt I belonged. And so I think it just became a habit um of ultimately it just became a habit for survival and sense of purpose. Wow. Um, not necessarily, but it looks like you were pushed into it for not the best reasons, but what a thing to be pushed into, right? There's all mm -hmm. kinds of things you can get pushed into um, when you're trying to escape a different reality. And the fact that that's what you ended up going towards is amazing. Everyone just wants a sense of belonging. <laughs> and I think that's something that's a crazy thing that I learned um, over the years is that everyone just wants to belong. And that's why people participate in certain things or do certain things, whether good or bad, because mm -hmm. they feel like they belong there. And and that's ultimately, um, I'm thankful, like I found my sense of belonging in those spaces. Are you a Brene Brown fan? We are. <laughs> um, we, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. She allowed me to be able to wrap my mind around this calling that I had on my heart. I just knew like it was a fire in me. Like I just, there's two sides. There was one, I just want to belong, but also this calling that I want others to feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, always committed to like creating that sense of community for others and like, and intentionally like wanting for me, like I, I've turned my sense of belonging into like this. I, I like to, I use this phrase, like part of me, but like genuinely give a fuck about other people and have deep compassion for others. Because you don't know their story. You don't know what they're going through. But like compassion from a place of like grace and understanding and, and love and like um and so curiosity and compassion have been like these like guiding principles as I've been in like this um throughout my twenties. I love that. Um for the listeners that don't know Brene Brown, she's a research psychologist that does a lot of work on uh belonging and the psychology behind that. So you guys should check her out if you don't know her. She's awesome. Um, but I love that. That's part of your story. I think, um, not just the fact that like the stuff that you were doing to try to belong, but how could you help other people like feel like they belong is, is yeah. so valuable and so, so important. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks Rachel. I guess next we could talk about, um, recovery. I don't know at what point you're yeah. done with treatment. Now you're feeling like you're moving on to a somewhat normal life, given the situation? What's what's going on when you're, I don't know, like treatment is over? Yeah. So, you know, I, I finished treatment in 2011. Um, the, the day I was considered off treatment and cancer free was the day after my birthday on April 11th, 2011. And, but what's interesting between April 11th, 2011, and I would go towards, you know, the next, um, <laughs> you know, now nine years leading up to, you know, October 20th, or October 17th of 2020, um, there's a season, there's a season of, you know, seven, you know, these nine years that I'm living with this artificial piece of metal inside me. And that was a time of just like lots of discovery, because I think it was a whole different time because, you know, I go to college, um, my grandparents and I didn't have the best relationship. And so when I went to college, it was another opportunity to completely rewrite my story. You know, I was, I was super blessed to get some really great scholarships in undergrad um, to be able to pursue because of my academics and involvement in undergrad. I mean, in high school for, for college. And so when I went to college, it was a time that I completely wanted to restart my story and rewrite it. But a part of that was um, leaning on what I knew <laughs> And what I knew best was like service and like giving back. And when I went through treatment, as I mentioned to you, Rachel, there was the nine kids I went through treatment with that um, completely changed my life, but they never got to go to college like I did. And so fell into the world of philanthropy. Um, that was early on in college, just throughout the entire time. Like, you know, I had the opportunity um, to start a student philanthropy in undergrad that fundraised for the Children's Hospital that 
um, was really designed to unite the, you know, the entire campus. And it was the best leadership experience. Like I brought together, um, you know, an entire leadership team of over 20 of us. And, you know, we to the point now where it's the largest student philanthropy at UNM. And that, you know, that was such an amazing experience throughout undergrad. And then it was this, it was this interesting time because I think you, as you grow older, you have these seasons that really prepare you for something really big. Mm -hmm. You know, I fell into the world of philanthropy, you know, I went into politics, I got all these, it was kind of a crazy journey, but it wasn't really until October 20th, um, October 17th and October 20th of 2020, my entire life changed again. Um, because there was always a part of me that never felt I could step into my truth. <laughs> I could never um, be truly open to who I was because of that metal that's sitting inside me um, that always felt there was a part of me that was held back to my past. Mm. And, you know, that was a, it was a season of like, you know, struggling with my sexuality and coming out as gay and like navigating my relationship as a kid that, you know, didn't have biological parents, all of these things. Um, but it was during the pandemic, I really doubled down on cycling, you know, whether it was, you know, road cycling and mountain biking. Um, and I was downhill mountain biking in Angel Fire, New Mexico. And I uh, came off of a jump. And it was a day where, Rachel, I, I had this feeling that something was coming. And I know mm -hmm. that's weird to say. Like there's, there's, I think we have these times that are in our mind and heart where something big is coming. And so often we know what it is, but we don't want to speak it out loud. And at this point, there was a period of my life where I just, I was ready for amputation. I was tired of the chronic pain. I mean, just the level of chronic pain for 12 years since 2009 was just horrible. It sucked. It was just, it was miserable. And I was ready. Um, I knew that I, it was almost time, but I, I don't think I would have ever done it because like to be able to make that choice to amputate your leg is pretty intense. For sure. Um, and I came off of a jump and like the back tire slipped out and I flew into a tree. And what's wild, Rachel, is I hit exactly where the metal was implanted. Mm. Nothing else. Nothing else in my body was injured. Just where the wow. metal implants were in my leg. That's crazy. And, and Rachel, I was just laying there. When that happens, the world just like, it slows down. I mean, it just had this moment, like I hit the tree. I'm laying there. I look down at my leg and you can see you can see the metal is separated from the bone and the leg is like in a ball. And a, for a lot of people, it would be, I mean, there would, you'd be freaking out and you'd be scared. Like mm -hmm. all of these things, like all of these mixed emote, all these wild emotions. But I was so mentally prepared for this moment <laughs> where I had a calming sensation come over me. That I knew on that day, freedom soon was about to start. Mm. Because I'd no longer be held back by this artificial piece of metal inside me. But I think the journey ahead, I was pretty naive to the fact of how hard the journey ahead was going to be. I mean, how can anyone ever be prepared for something like that? Because I think at this point, you know, you know, Rachel, I really started to, I really started processing this in around 2018. Um, you know, in, in undergrad in, in 2015, the metal broke the first time. Um, the surgeon opted to um, repair it and extend it into the ankle joint. Um, okay. And, but 2018 was this period where I think it was a really interesting time because the Paralympics were at the, I mean, I think for me, I was more aware of the Paralympics. I think I was in this weird space of like, I'm disabled. Am I not disabled? Like I really was, but I think there was, I, I never knew where I fit into, um, fit into that space of, as a person living with a disability. 
Um, but 2018 was a time when two really good friends went to the Paralympics and Brenna Huckabee and Noah Elliott. Um, it's crazy how you can meet people in your life, like can be a decade before. And that meeting of that person can completely track, like completely change your life a decade later. Mm -hmm. And Brenna and Noah and I met, we met through a pediatric cancer organization and um, Brenna and Noah were both amputees. And um, I remember watching Brenna and Noah go to the games and win and get the gold medal. And there's basically 2018 to 2020 was this period, like what I love about social media is that you get to follow each other's journeys like that you've met. And I would watch Brenna and Noah just like completely, one, chase their dreams, but mm -hmm. also completely crush the narrative of what it means to live with a disability and redefine it. And, you know, both of them pursuing the sport of snowboarding. And in 2020, right after the accident, um, when the accident happened, Rachel, it was the height of the pandemic. So there was no rooms available in the hospital and no guests were allowed, mm -hmm. which they had literally turned the urgent care hallway into like my room. And uh, during the waiting period in between the act, like, you know, the accident happening and actual surgery was the 17th to the 20th. And I FaceTimed Brenna and Noah. And... Um, they could see me in a hospital bed and Brenna, you can see Brenna's reaction. She's like, the day's here, isn't it? <laughs> and I was like, yup, we're here. And, and she knew in that moment that I was at the hospital, something has happened and I'm more than likely going to have that amputation because I've been asking her for a few years, like, what is it like? Mm -hmm. What's life like? Like, how do you navigate this journey living with limb loss? And I asked both Brenna and Noah um, one question and I asked them like, help me understand what's about to happen and what I'm, what I need to be prepared for. And they would go on about how hard it's going to be and how difficult, but I asked one follow-up question. Then what changed? Mm. What changed? Like there has to be something like I, I, I think my entire childhood prepared for this, for me to ask this question. But like, I understand it's hard. Like, I get it. Like, it's it's gonna fucking suck. But what was the moment then that the light switched? That you went from your sadness and your depression and your frustration and your anger, like all of this, all of this built up emotion around how fucking hard this is, to I'm now living with a sense of purpose. Mm. and they said when they started pursuing sport and that day in the hospital I was committed to leaning on my past and my past was through service like I knew that like it could be a vehicle for me to process all of what I'm going through and two pursue something in sport um and I, at that point, had no clue what that sport was um, or what that was going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I loved cycling. And I, you know, in 2018, I picked up sit skiing and got really good at it. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the number one goal is I just want to return to the bike and I want to return to skiing. And I returned to skiing um, less than six weeks after I had my amputation. Wow. Um, and I was back on my bike uh, in less than two months and learning how to ride with one leg. And I learned how to ride in my hallway of my apartment. Um, yeah. Wow. So also the timing of all this being 2020, um, it's already a very crazy situation to add that on top of it. When you're going through the recovery process, are you very alone? Are there people, obviously you have people to FaceTime, things like that. Sounds like you have a support system of some sort, but are you going through most of the rehab and the recovery and like learning all of that alone? I was really lucky, Rachel, um, during those seasons that I would find really difficult in my childhood or even in college, like really good people, really good humans came into my life. And I've always noticed is that there's during the hardest, most difficult seasons of life, there's always someone that's there. And um, early on in my child, well, in, in high school, um, 
brief snapshot, went to a camp for kids with cancer and met a guy named Sean. And Sean um, eventually is someone who I, Sean was my camp counselor. Okay. Well, during chemo, he was a freshman in college at UNM. And he very similar like story of like found service to be his vehicle to heal. Like Sean's dad passed away senior year of high school, was supposed to, you know, ski in college, blew out his knee skiing Mm -hmm. and just like completely poured his heart into service and like found his healing. And Sean eventually is someone I now call my big brother. You know, I call his mom, my mom, they're my family. And so during that time, you know, during the days in the hospital, um, unfortunately couldn't have visitors, but you know, I'd FaceTime people. But when I returned out of the hospital, I was lucky enough, um, some friends from, from undergrad are now trainers. And, you know, I got the DMS of like, you know, a friend from undergrad now is a physical therapist, you know, another friend is a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after my accident, I had lots of people reach out. And that was something I learned is one of the biggest things is that when someone extends that hand, to help you take it. Like I used to have a lot of shame around accepting help because it's hard. Mm-hmm. It is like, really hard to accept someone's help because there's like the stigma around feeling weakness. But for me was, I felt like this, I felt a lot of it's childhood trauma of like burden. Like I felt like I was a burden mm-hmm. on someone's life when like they had to help me. Yeah, We want to help each other. Like we genuinely like, deep down want to help each other because that's what makes us human. And like, it takes that moment to just say you, 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 you know, they extend their hand out, you extend yours and you grab on and you allow them to pull you back up. And that was probably the most pivotal was, you know, I immediately, you know, got back to physical therapy because my friend Ryan, you know, I was in the gym doing training with Bree you know, my friend Leandra introduced me to a nonprofit in Telluride called Go Hawkeye. And like Paul Savage um, opened up his home to me and like gave me his sit ski. There was just these, these moments to like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, the day after the accident in between the accident and the surgery, um, my friend Arlene Armijo, and this was probably the most pivotal text message I could have ever received was Arlene Arlene introduced me to a guy named Dan Tun, who co-founded Dare to Try, which is the paratriathlon club I'm a part of. And Arlene and Dan were Lululemon ambassadors together that ran the Vancouver Marathon. And they paced it together. And obviously, when you're running this, you know, running this marathon together, you get a lot of time together to have conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a time when Arlene learns about Dare to Try and its mission to supporting athletes living with a disability and not knowing years later that she would be able to introduce someone to that organization. And all I get is this text message of Arlene saying, Arlene, meet, you know, meet Dan, Dan, meet Kyle. You know, he just had his accident. He's going to have to have an amputation. And I know that it's so important for him to get back to movement and physical activity. Um, and Dan would introduce me to triathlon and I, I wouldn't be able to fully start triathlon for about a year and a half later. Um, but that one text message while in the hospital had this like North Northern light to work. Mm-hmm. It's like this boy's never done a fucking triathlon in his life, let alone, you know, at this point I haven't ran since I was 14. Um, and your boy's only a swimmer and like casually like hanging out with friends at a pool <laughs> or at a lake. Um, I can cycle, but the two other disciplines um, mm-hmm. done, but I was like, you know what? I've always been up for like, oh, let's just try it. Let's just, why not? Let's yeah. just try it once. And so. Wow. That's awesome. Um, and so I guess before that text message had been the FaceTime call with your friends, correct? And you're like, okay, I'm yep. going to do sport. Like that's how it's going to, that's how I'm going to get through this is that goal with sport. And then you get that text message not that long after by the sounds of it. And you're yep. like, oh, there it is. That's the answer. Yeah. Triathlon's the answer. And and I knew like triathlon, so triathlon was a dream, but I, you know, even early on in my journey, I really thought it was going to be really, it was going to be a quick process to return back to the things I love, you know, return back to cycling, return back to skiing, um, pursue triathlon specifically. Like I was so excited to finally run because with those metal implants, I couldn't run mm. because it was anchored into the ankle joint and there was just so much pain. 
So like to be able to run for the first time since I was 14, I was stoked about. But where I was naive, Rachel, was the fact of how hard it was going to be to A, get access to a basic walking leg, let alone I'm going to learn that insurance considers physical activity not medically necessary. And I'm not going to be able to have insurance cover the prosthetics I need for physical activity, like running and cycling and skiing. And one, I'm going to have to fight for access to the walking leg. And two, I'm going to have to find some sort of support to cover the cost of these, of these assisted devices, especially like the modification, like to my bike or the running leg that costs upwards of 15 to $20,000. And so this, you know, I have the amputation. I'm excited to return back to, you know, one, return back to my, my daily activities, but also discover new activities. And you have that first conversation with a prosthetist and a prosthetist has to sit to you down and say, as much as these goals, as much as you have the, like, you know, yes, you have these goals, Kyle, but I need to be very honest with you. It's going to be hard to return to it. That fucking sucks. But in that moment, it returned another opportunity. (laughs) An opportunity to not only fight for what I know is right, but also an opportunity to help countless others at the same time. So in that conversation, or maybe shortly after when you're reflecting on it, are you immediately going to, oh, this is a big issue and I'm, I'm going to work towards it for not just for myself, but for other people? Is that an immediate thought you're having? To an extent, um, I think at the moment, again, it takes meeting certain people at certain times to, you, you know, when the calling is right. But I think at that moment, I was just more frustrated and I was just really pissed off. And I think the first step was really, I just need to get access to my walking leg. And, you know, through that process of not only, you know, when you meet a prosthetist that doesn't want to help you, you find, you find the medical provider that is going to help you. I think that's anyone that goes through injury or illness. You, you think that you have to accept the outcomes of the, of the professional that's shared and like, you know, the professional that's sitting in front of you and the roadmap that they share with you, you have to accept that. Um, but when you know what is right, you go find the individuals that are going to help you get there and provide you the care and the support you need. And so, um, you know, I, I'd eventually find my prosthetist in, in Denver, um, because at this point I, I was denied multiple times access to a basic walking leg and eventually would over, you know, I'd go through the process of overturning my insurance um, through a legal battle with, you know, my state superintendent of insurance and would win that. <laughs> um, you know, I would, you know, to get that first off, to get that letter that says this leg exceeds your basic and medical necessity to receiving that letter of saying, you know, what you need is medically necessary and like to be able to get access to that device. Um, So at this point, a walking leg isn't medically necessary. That's what insurance is claiming. The type of walking leg I was requesting. So there's, so there's, um, so there's different types of prosthetics that have different functioning. Mm -hmm. And so you have your basic prosthetic that are usually hydraulic based, but for someone that is highly active, um, they're called microprocessor knees. um, And that means they have basically computerized technology that allows the hydraulics to work. Um, but it prevents you from falling, allows you to go downstairs. Mm-hmm. It allows you to have the resistance walking down steep inclines. It allows you to have as much as the most stable gait as possible while walking. But because that device, um, it, through the eyes of the insurance company I had, is that exceeded mm-hmm. a medical necessity. It's not necessary for you to have this leg because they view it as a quote unquote luxury. <laughs> perspective (laughs) yeah and like to read that and to read that in denial letter it was just hard it was sad Mm -hmm. um but i knew that i needed this device for me to have the outcomes um that i deserved and needed and so 
I would eventually, you know, Rachel, I would eventually, you know, get access to that device. Um, but it started, you know, at the same time, it's this like simultaneous passion to pursue sport and learning like, okay, one, the running blade and the additional socket and the modifications to the bike are not going to be covered. And so I think that was a time where I'm starting to learn like self-advocacy and like really asking for help and leaning on those around you to support you, um, whether it's, you know, reaching out to nonprofit partners to give, you know, grants to cover the cost of it, um, as well as, you know, asking, you know, my prosthetist, like, what kind of support can you help me provide me to be able to pursue these sports? Wow. So you're making these steps, you're trying to fight for it in different ways by reaching out. Um, and what's happening with that? What, are you getting good feedback? Is it mixed? Yeah. You know, I was, I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, be able to get an old running blade donated to me. My prosthetist had like an old running blade um, sitting in his like storage unit um, at, at the prosthetic office. And what was interesting was for me cycling, I did a lot of my cycling without the without the socket like um for those that as an above knee amputee there's there's really two options that you can use uh you can do when you're cycling is one um use your actual prosthetic um unfortunately it's heavy it's mm -hmm. it's it's bulky you have to like modify the socket so especially if you're above knee amputee my socket comes all the way up to where like the groin is um and sits so really sits right under the ischium so that you can have that containment to remove the pressure off the bottom of the residual limb so all the how the containment's designed or um you one you have to modify that that socket specifically so that you can sit on the saddle <laughs> and so for a lot of them you know obviously you need a second socket which i mean these sockets are five five thousand dollars um and so I learned about another option and they're called, you know, a bike socket where it's, you know, it's that socket that's similar design to your residual limb, but it's fabricated to the top tube and seat post. So your residual limb sits in it and you just bike with one leg and you just learn how to increase your power um, on that one sound side. And so I would, I would eventually get a bike socket um, to return back to, I, at this point, I'm just biking without a leg, anything. I'm just like sitting on the saddle without anything um but it was a game changer <laughs> when i was able to like stabilize my hips oh, this is so much easier <laughs> so much easier um but the crazy part was when i when i got the running blade donated to me by my prosthetist it sat in my closet for over four months because i was so afraid to start because i was afraid to discover i couldn't do it so just sat there and sat there and, you know, I would, I, it's so much easier just to lean on the things you already know you can do and not try things that are, that are new, that are scary. Um, also like new things that you, I mean, so often there's things that we all dream of doing all of us. There's I, every single one of us dream of that half marathon, that marathon, that trail run, that skiing lesson, all of these things that we dream of doing, but we're afraid to start. For me, I was afraid to start and find and fail. <clears throat> so at that point, what what gets you to start? I mean, it's sitting there in your closet for four months. Um, is there one a big event that happens, or is it just eventually you're like, okay, I just got to do it? Yeah, Rachel. <laughs> when I when I met when I got introduced to Dan Tun through Dare to Try, um. Early on in my journey, I'd send him tons of text messages around like amputee questions and especially like returning back to sports and cycling and running. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where Dan is like, dude, I have two legs. <laughs> and as much as I would love to be able to like help you through this, I really think that you need to meet someone um, that really understands your journey. And so I want to introduce you to um, a woman named Haley Dans. And Haley um, has a very similar story to you. You know, she not only is it, she's an osteosarcoma survivor, she had her amputation early on um, when she was a kid. She's also an openly gay athlete. 
and just like all of these parallels. Mm-hmm. And so Dan sends me this like text message in between Haley and I introducing me and Haley and I would get on a call and immediately felt this bond. <laughs> um, you know, it was so cool because Haley already had to accomplish all the things that I dreamed of doing. You know, at this point also Haley is a two-time silver medalist for USA triathlon. She got the silver medal in, in Rio, got the silver medal in Tokyo. And, and it was really interesting time because Haley felt like it was, it was her time to finally start stepping into mentorship. Mm. And as she's, you know, she's at the same time pursuing the Paris games, but she's like, you know, I've, I've had these opportunities. I've gone through two game cycles and I get, I want to, I want to share these lessons with others. And, Haley and I would just stay in close contact. You know, I would text her back and forth. I'd call her, I'd FaceTime her, asking her tons of questions. And it was June. Um, it was it was June of 2022. And she sends me a text. And she's like, Kyle, in a, in a couple of weeks, Dare to Try is having a training camp that I really think that you need to go to. And... And I ask her questions about the training camp. She's like, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a great opportunity for you to meet fellow, you know, to meet, you know, elite paratriathletes, to elite emerging paratriathletes, to meet development paratriathletes. But what's really awesome, it's, it's a, it's a training camp to learn how to race. And at the end of camp, there is a triathlon that you get to complete. And so at this point, I've done a couple of triathlons, just the bike and swim portion of the triathlon, okay. um, not the run. And it's June 15th of, of the summer and it's 95 degree day. And I text Arlene and her husband, um, her husband, Jesse. And so Arlene obviously is the one that introduced me to Dan and Arlene and Jesse own a local track club called Duke's track club. And I text them and I said, well, one of you will meet me at the Highland high school track just to run a lap. Cause you know, I told Haley, I said, you know, I will go to this camp. I know I haven't started running, but I should just go to this camp and learn as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And I was like, will you just meet me to go run one lap? And for those that like, um, that may not be aware of the amputees, like we sweat a ton. And so I'm just like, I was dreading it because like walking down the street with the amount of sweat I have, like you like lose suction. It's uncomfortable at times. So now imagine running, mm-hmm. um, and how hard it is, like where your prosthetic and so I was like, I just want to go run one lap. And that one lap turned into over a mile that day. And the next morning, I remember texting, I remember texting Haley and she was like, I was like, does your body hurt like this all the time after a run? Because like, Rachel, I haven't ran. And I've never realized like there's all of these muscles that you use while running. I was like, I didn't even know there was a muscle there. And, and the one thing she told me, she was like, you just need to run a little bit each day, just a little bit. Even if it's like, you're going for 20 minutes, just a little bit. And so for those, you know, those two weeks before camp, I would just run a little bit each day. I'd dabble some swimming, dabble some biking leading into camp. And I would go to camp and that moment again happened of belonging. You know, I get off the plane, you know, we're bussed to the camp and it was my first time in my journey that I feel really, I feel like I belong because I'm surrounded by individuals that understand what I've gone through, what it's taken to get here and understand like how hard it is to navigate life with a disability, but you don't let that disability define you. Um, but it's also a time where I started developing a sense of pride in having a disability. And so meeting these athletes, um, some of them are congenital amputees. Some of them are, have acquired amputations. Some of them are spinal cord injuries and others are visually impaired. Um, but to be surrounded by them and go to camp and learn the fundamentals of triathlon. And then that last day of camp being my first triathlon. How did your first triathlon go? I mean, you're already emotions are high. You're just feeling great. You're feeling like you belong. Um, how was that experience? I remember waking up that morning and my number one goal, I had two goals that day is one, fall in love with the sport. 
just fall in love with it. And two, finish the triathlon. <laughs> and I remember getting through getting through the swim and getting through the bike and I I enter the run and the entire time running, um, I mean there was a couple of moments where I'd have to stop for a second and then I do like I it was a lot of like speed bursts. <laughs> It was stop, burst, stop. And like, but I didn't know what time it was um, and where it was like time-wise, but I was just like, you know, just, just fall in love with this. And I remember on the run, there was just so many moments where I was like, I get to do this. I get to move my body like this. Mm -hmm. I get to run. Like, like I dreamed of running since I was 14 years old. And one of the things I learned about the day before at the training camp is these races, this race was a part of a development series for USA triathlon um, to, you know, to one um, it's, it's a great entry point after local races for paratriathletes to start um, one racing against one another on a national scale, but also it allows them to get that like fundamental experiences um, to get the knowledge and the experience of racing, um, if they choose to pursue elite paratriathlon, um, at the higher level. And these development series races are actually the qualifiers for our national championships. And, um, I, I learned at, at one of the things I learned, you know, the day before is that this, this race is one, the last qualifier for the national championships, but luckily enough, if you go to these development series races, they increase, um, they increase the qualifying time by a little bit. So if you were to do your own race, it was an hour um, and 28 minutes to qualify for the national championships. But if you attend this race, it's an hour and 32 minutes and like something odd seconds. And I remember going to the run and I'm coming around the final turn and Dan Tun, who's the co-founder of Dare to Try, Haley Dans, who is my mentor and her teammate, Melissa Stockwell, um, who was the who was the bronze medalist um, in at the Rio at the Rio 2016 Paralympics? And Haley and Melissa are both above knee amputees that were there mentoring us that weekend. And Dan screams at me, "You have less than three minutes. Empty the fucking tank." And at this point, I'm like three minutes, and I and I knew like I kind of correlate. I was like three minutes. Wait, that must be the qualifying. And I just like look towards the finish line and I'm just like narrowing in. And it was a moment where I now understood that some of those experiences that a lot of athletes have with the finish line, where you know that you're so close to achieving a goal of yours and you have this hyper vision where you just narrow in on it. Everything else just shuts off. And I run past, you know, I run through the finish line. And all of them come running up to me and say, congratulations, you qualified for the national championships with less than seconds to spare. <laughs> and it was this moment of like, I was like, holy shit. Like, it was just like a pure excitement of like, I remember that morning. I said to myself, like, what if I did qualify? What if? And that's been this theme over the past year and a half has been what if and there's no there's no ego or shame if i don't achieve it but it's 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 this like opportunity to dream bigger than what you think is possible and to dream like that is just such a beautiful thing is to dream about something that you don't think is possible in the moment but what if it is mm, i love that i think it seems like so much we, I don't know, humans worry, right? So it's like, what if this bad thing happens? What if this and there, there it's a negative, but what if the positive, right? Yep. And when you're framing it that way, like your world is just open with possibilities, but to be able to qualify your first ever triathlon, <laughs> you're like, what if, and then you're like three minutes, <laughs> I got to get going. I mean, things, wow. things happen the way they is. Like, I mean, if they, you know, they, you know, they have that buffer of additional time at these development series races because one they they want to build a pipeline of athletes 
Um, mm-hmm. Players qualifying for a reason because they do need to have these high standards for the athletes so that you're, so you can be competing mm-hmm. against one another that are at that level. Um, but it's a great, it's a great process for you to know the stages of your development within triathlon, um, especially in the Paris space. And so I go to the national championships and one, just life-changing experience again, really awesome. Like, again, I kept saying like, what if, and that, what if kept channeling, um, you know, I, would go to the national championships, have another, you know, race success. And that fall, I get invited to two training camps at the Paralympic training, Paralympic and Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. And that was the moment where, you know, walking into the doors of the Olympic and Paralympic training center, and you see on the wall home of team USA. I had a moment like this is where I'm meant to be. But at the same time was this beautiful combination of I come home from the national championships and I hear from everybody. You're such an inspiration. You're such an inspiration. And Rachel, I struggled with it. Mm. I struggled hearing it because what was hard is I would meet other people living with limb loss in New Mexico and they wouldn't be able to pursue the same things that I'm pursuing because they didn't have access. They didn't have access to the prosthetics and the technology that I had that allowed me to have the same opportunities as my non-disabled peers. Mm-hmm. And that was the time I'm learning about a legislation that got passed in Maine um, that was essentially the bill mandated insurance to cover prosthetics only um, for physical activity just for kids. So what's interesting at this time, you know, this amazing woman, you know, Jordan Simpson gets this bill passed under the radar and she gets introduced to Nicole Verkylan and Nicole Verkylan at the time, again, you meet people at the right time, right place. And Nicole is, it's been a mission of hers is to change the law to ensure that physical activity is a right and not a privilege. And what was unbelievable, Rachel, is, you know, she starts this movement called So Kids Can Move. And it was to mandate insurance companies to cover prosthetics for kids so that they could be physically active. And at the same time, I come off national championships. I, I learn from, you know, Nicole about this legislation. And I reach out to her and I say, can we introduce this bill in New Mexico? And, you know, she'd walk me through the, the legislation. And I asked her, I said, why, why can't we do all ages? Like one, like, why can't we do all ages? And why can't we do prosthetics and orthotics? And, you know, Nicole, that's always been a hope of hers was ensuring that every single person can have access. But we started doing just kids at the time with Maine because it was an easy win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who wants to deny a little kid access yeah. to this activity? Like, come on now. And, but I told Nicole, I said, I want, I want to take that opportunity for us to do all ages. But at the same time, I learned, you know, New Mexico doesn't have a foundational law called insurance fairness, um, which is another prosthetic parity law. So we would have to do this really robust piece of legislation. That's insurance fairness. That's mandating insurance companies to cover prosthetics and orthotics for all ages. Knowing what I'm going into is going to be a massive challenge because of how robust the bill is. And beginning of 2023, um, we have 60 days in New Mexico to get any sort of legislation passed. And we, you know, we end up through creating this like unbelievable coalition, pass the law. Um, through bipartisan support and not a single no vote. And we pass a law ensuring in New Mexico that physical activity is a right and not a privilege. And um, what's crazy is, you know, we're, we're talking today on January 2nd, um, the law went into effect yesterday. Oh, wow. Which is That's really incredible. Cool. And so the bill's now been passed in Arkansas, Illinois, um, and Colorado in addition to New Mexico and Maine. Um, 
and our goal is to pass a law in 28 states by the LA 28 Paralympics. And so it's just really cool symbolism. So doing some consulting with them and support um, for their team uh, while also pursuing, you know, my dreams of the Paralympics, ultimately being the LA 28 Paralympics and right now racing um, on the world triathlon circuit right now. That's, that's so incredible. I, I love your story because it's not, I mean, your story alone, if it's just about you and the work you're doing and trying to get back out there and be this elite athlete, like that's amazing. It's the things that you've gone through and to be able to continue to thrive through them is just incredible. But the fact that you're, you're turning the challenges that you faced into your life's work to help other people and just make it better for other people is really just incredible. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Here's to Almost. Know someone going through a tough time or someone who could use a little extra inspiration? Share this episode with them to spread the good that can come out of our almosts. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and subscribe to never miss an episode. Whatever your almost is, I hope you're one step closer to finding that good on the other side. Have the best day.